talk about no priorities. That's K-N-O-W priorities. I'm Randy Skopasek, and in this podcast, we'll talk with people in the industry about product prioritization. Our guest today is Richard Soroder. Richard is the Vice President of Product at CenturyLink, blogger, author, Microsoft MVP, InfoQ editor, Pluralsight trainer, and speaker. You can find him on Twitter at rseroter. That's R-S-E-R-O-T-E-R. First question of the day, if I may, is uh, how does uh, prioritization work for the products and services that you manage or oversee? Yeah, it's a good question. I think, as as you said, it's often about doing the things the customer is makes them happy. I've been reading so much more lately too. And you think about this jobs to be done mentality that, you know, I, I often use the analogy: no one ever calls CenturyLink and says, "I need a gig of RAM." What they need is a application environment. What they need is really a service, and they don't even need that service as much as they need what that service will give them. It lets mm-hmm. them sell something to their customer. That's the job they're hiring us for, not looking for storage or whatever, you're looking for more than that. And we try to color that when we think about features and prioritizations is how are we satisfying some of those jobs to be done? How are we focusing on the end, the end thing? And as we look at how do we prioritize those things, there's a cost of delay factor that sometimes comes into it. That is, what is the cost of not doing this? What, what am I going to pay monetarily or strategically by kicking the can on this feature down the line? But at the same time, other priorities can be as you do sometimes play chess and you're, you're making strategic choices now that another team is going to need in four months from now. So how do I tee up that work to make sure they don't get blocked later on? Hmm. So sometimes prioritization is simply based on the cost of doing something. It's based on which often everything else is subservient to that, whether that's a customer request, whether that's something we see in the market, whether that is something that comes to unblock a team in the future. Typically, we're simply looking at what things are important to us, but what things aren't. You know, Where can I say that this is a good idea, but not something that we need to work on right now for whatever reason? Maybe it's not as strategic, or maybe we don't see the financial benefit. So mm-hmm. for us, a lot of time of prioritization is deprioritizing, not just moving things up, but moving things down. We did this as a team yesterday, looking at our second half and looking at items and being able to say, Using that methodology, our our VP of engineering, Jim Newkirk, likes to use, which is you go through everything in the list. And is this more important than this? Yes. All right, then flip them. Then do it. Is the next one more important than that first one? No. Then keep it where it is. And being able to make those choices so you end up with what's below the line, not just what's above it. Yeah. Yeah, which is good because some some of that stuff at the very bottom of the list, you'll find out just should be dropped eventually or someone should be told you know it's just going to sit there forever so uh yeah no (laughs) i know i know the scrum mentality before and still is depending on who you talk to is just let them put whatever they want on the list um right (laughs) it'll just bubble to the bottom like well there's more things to manage Um, when, when you talk about unblocking teams uh down the line is that more about uh dependency management of the work items to be done that, you know, when, when they're trying to do, um, some prioritization of the items themselves, do you, 
and, and you're thinking, well, if we don't do this right now, it's going to cause an, a problem down the line when we have to do something else. Do you normally find that that something else right. is on the list or not? Yeah, I mean, that's, and that's, I guess, where my job has to come into play is as I look across the 30-plus the feature teams we have now is where can we bubble up those cross-team dependencies and where can we eliminate them? In some cases, we really push hard to say you should be able to build your products with few to no dependencies. And sometimes that's impossible, but sometimes it's not. You can come up with creative ways to not have to be in someone's critical path. But yeah, a lot of time it is identifying if I'm trying to unblock this team because I know if they don't have this feature, they're not going to be able to launch their thing a few months from now because they're going to have to tap into that capability. It's up to myself and it's up to each product owner to also raise their hand and say, these are dependencies I have. Next week, we're all getting together in St. Louis as we do every quarter to sit as an entire product team for, for about eight hours. And we do some cross training. We do some other workshops, but we also take the time to go through every team and take 10 minutes and say, get, talk about your short-term roadmap and talk about your dependencies so that there's some shared understanding. So you can hear someone say, Hey, I'm shipping this thing. And somebody else go, I didn't know that I might need that for my service. We <laughs> yeah. bought a database company uh, about two months ago, orchestrate.io. Yeah. And now we have over 10% of our feature teams are using it as a backing store. Like that's the point cool. is that as you cross pollinate teams, sometimes the team themselves may feel a little siloed and that's fine. Go, go run your product, but you can't lose your shared awareness. You have mm -hmm. to make sure you see what else is around both from a dependency perspective and maybe an area where you want to take advantage of another service that you didn't know about. Hmm. Yeah. That's cool. That's cool. Um, so what do you, what do you find um, as I understand it right now, are you mostly overseeing the the product management teams? Because as I understand, you recently moved up the ladder a bit more. Is that right? Or yeah, I think it's, it's just a war of attrition. I think if I stick around long enough, I'll keep getting promoted. <laughs> but it's a uh, yeah. I mean, it, as you knew us when we were tier three mm -hmm. a few years back, and it was a, a smaller organization, and I was part of the product team and then eventually took over the smaller product team. And, you know, now product is about 45 people. And mm -hmm. so I, I sit in that organization. These are product owners and product analysts. We don't technically okay. consider any of our people product managers. And okay. some of that's just terminology, but we really try to align that to the agile sense of a product owner where you're not potentially just writing specs and handing them off as some of our people come from other large software shops where you just kind of have these airlifted program and project managers and product managers who come in, drop some specs, check back next month to see if it's finished and then yell mm. at you when it's not done. Instead, it's, you know, the product owner is part of the planning session. They are yeah. prioritizing a backlog. They are tracking the progress. They're testing the software as it's coming off the assembly line, but then they're also communicating out. So for us, the product owner is the voice of the customer in and they're the mm -hmm. voice of the technology out. And if you play that role right, it's a lot more fun than just being a kind of arm's length requirements gatherer and notification engine. Mm -hmm. So I guess from your experience there, uh, what do you find are actually the more complicated or I don't want to say more flawed parts, but usually with any decision made about how you run a process mm -hmm. or how you do uh, something, you've got trade-offs or you've got some things like you just can't, right. you just haven't been able to get to, uh, there just hasn't been enough time in the day to kind of sort out how that should be right. addressed. 
So what's the hardest parts of those? Is that the question? Yeah, of, of your uh, of the way that you uh, have the prioritization processes working right now, what do you find are the hardest yeah. pieces to address or per se, I guess it's still hardest. Uh, flawed is something I, I try and toss in there, but I don't always think it's the appropriate <laughs> term. Yeah, the you know the hardest part, and we had our team stand up today. We we take every Thursday and, and take a half hour to do some cross training or just some chatting among the team. And as we look at our planning and that we talk about our second half roadmap, some of the hardest part is as these teams, as you keep scaling horizontally, and you have teams with their own ownership. Product owners own; they're the mini CEOs of their product if it's run correctly. That mm-hmm. this is a self-sufficient team. This can do what they need to do. So. The hard part for my job, or as we have this horizontally scale team, is explaining priorities that span them. So in saying, look, we're just not, we don't have cycles to work on X, I'm prioritizing Y, one of these teams might say, well, you're you're sticking it to me for the year. Like, I can't ship what I need to <laughs> ship unless you give me X. And those are, you know what, that's why you need to make tough choices sometimes, but arguably the job of a product owner, let alone the manager of product owners, is prioritization. That's the entire job. My entire job, I think, is prioritization. And that's just the nature of it. And that involves hard choices. And that's some of the most difficult part is when you've got 30-plus teams all with their own trajectory that they've been asked to run with and own, but they don't own it completely. They do have to sometimes step back and say, I can't do something unless this other dependent team gives me what I need. And my priority to them isn't as important as their priority to me. And so sometimes you can bridge that gap and sometimes there's just a disconnect that has to be there and that 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 team's need isn't more important than some other thing that benefits the greater good. So my job is to constantly stay in tune with that so that that's not a last second crisis. That can't be I was supposed to ship tomorrow, but this team didn't do something. Instead, it's (laughs) I can't ship in Q4 because this team's not building it now. That I can work with. And that's how we try to make sure that transparency is huge here. There's no... There's no success when the individual team or individual team member does something fantastic. You get you might get praised for it, but our mutual success, our mutual team's efforts is how we succeed as a company. And so there's no benefit to to keep things too close to the vest within our organization. You know, you're not going to get kudos for showing that you shipped everything by not actually doing anything anyone else wanted. That's not going <laughs> to earn you any bonus here. So you know, yeah. that's, that's the part is making sure people understand both the responsibility for their own team, but also understanding that that shared piece that their priorities just may not be someone else's. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess in that case, as, as scaled out as uh, your organization is, if there's one team who has a dependency on another team, but the other team has to, by priorities, work on something else, I mean, that sounds like right. the appropriate case the first team that is a little bit less priority, maybe they should be working on something else. I mean, yeah, yeah I, I mean, that, they that need what they need, but they have a dependency. They're not going to get anywhere. Yeah. Now what we've seen with that is that, so you have two choices. I can, I can put teams in a holding pattern and say, don't do anything, which is terribly wasteful and not useful. Mm-hmm. I can put them on something else entirely that says, here's a team that might need your help. Or we can, in, in many cases, as what we've done, we've said, Work with those constraints. So, for example, mm-hmm. we're going to be launching in a few days. I don't know when the podcasts go live, so I don't think I'm unveiling you, you anything too new. You don't have to say new, anything. But... Just, you'll, you'll launch no, something. Okay. 
Yeah, there's a, I mean, there's a new service launching, and originally they wanted to be tightly integrated into our control portal management experience. I let them know in February there was 0% chance I was going to prioritize that, not because I didn't love the idea, but because there were things that were more important to me to get done. Mm-hmm. So what did they do? They built a really functional kind of side application that still uses our same identity system, but they decided to get out of our critical path and get us out of the critical path, and they built a great tool that sits outside and still deploys this capability, which feels functions kind of like a standalone service anyway. So if it was yeah. embedded, that would have been great. But they instead of saying, we're just going to close up shop, we can't ship anything, they decide, look, we, we can come with other ways to leverage what is available to us without them doing anything and still ship a service. That We yeah. think, especially in the MVP fashion, in a customer-centric approach, our customers are going to like having access to value more than sometimes getting the exact perfect experience of that value. Oh, yeah. You wish you, you have it all. You can iterate on that experience anyway. Absolutely. And iteration is going to be key. I'd rather get it in the market, collect feedback, learn some things. And as teams open up their bandwidth and as things make available, I might get that embed experience I was asked after. But meanwhile, I can get some great value to customers the way it is today. Okay. So how do your product owners, um, and to a certain extension also yourself, how do you uh, currently harmonize with the other groups i mean the the customers uh yeah. the c levels just everyone who needs to be included right yeah it's a good question it's something that's always a challenge is everyone you know especially salespeople who you know god love them they love to sell the future oh, you know yeah. it's a very difficult time Guess to, what I just to sold. sell <laughs> market yeah it, Let's tell you what's coming next versus let's sell you what we have right now, which is already great. So what we do is, you know, I once a month talk to our broader organization with what's in this current software sprint, what's coming next, what did we just ship? And then once a quarter, we do what we call Roadmap Week, and I do a bit of a roadshow for the various different organizations and teams and cover what's the the next six-month horizon. And we talk about that. And then again, get some sense. We do some Q&A. Because the goal is to definitely show the transparency. Now, as part of that, I never give the roadmap to anyone besides product to deliver. No one mm-hmm. else has a copy of it. No one else does it. And that's not because we're control freaks completely. It's because priorities change. And yeah. I, I think any of us who've been in the software development experience have had the experience of someone coming up to us 6, 8, 12, 18 months later with some stale document saying, you had promised to ship this now. Yeah. And Come that's, on. That's, like, I can't function that way i mean that's that's a good uh comment there because you talk about transparency and there's actually the negative side of transparency where right being completely transparent to your customers and such and and you get that you get that choice on whether to completely share a roadmap of this is what we're doing this is supposedly when we'll do it still no promises but then they try and hold you to that um so yeah i I totally understand that i saw some uh write-up it was last year um, from one of the people from GitHub, and it was basically explaining that same thing. We don't, we don't ever say when, <laughs> when something's coming out, because right. sure enough, it'll be a d- disappointment. Um, right. Unfortunately, and that's why we do quarterly guidance versus saying, you know, here's a Gantt chart that shows exactly what features are coming, which date, and which month, and. What we've seen is that somehow finds its way into contracts that somehow sometimes slows up a customer who says, well, I guess I'll just wait another month to deploy something until this thing comes. But then we've meanwhile reprioritized 
and now they didn't get value from the, the deployment anyway by doing the status quo. So as you said, it's a great balance between transparency and making sure people can understand our priorities. So it's not just, you know, hey, dumb populace, this is what we're doing, just accept it. It's sometimes here's why we prioritize this quarter. And we said this is more important strategically, sometimes at a principle level, like we're valuing scalability this quarter, or we're going to focus on extensibility, or we're going to focus on features, or, you know, making sure that it's understood really clearly what we prioritized. So we can debate that. Let's not debate the features. Let's debate our high-level categorical prioritization. Mm. And it's well-received. I think teams like get knowing what's coming. They've also started to accept that in an agile fashion, as you're behaving in a lean and, you know, I'm, I'm trying to make sure I'm absorbing feedback and incorporating it in that model it is physically impossible to give someone an 18-month roadmap there's it, it's <laughs> yeah. useless it serves no value because it will be wrong 80 percent of the time so instead we will make sure that you understand that we hold fast to our principles but we're going to be loose on our trajectory of how we get there and that's the best you can do and if teams the only way you can earn that as we've learned is execution matters when you execute you get more of a free pass to say we're following a North Star, but we're not exactly sure if we're going to zig and zag a little bit. But, hey, we're shipping every month, and we're shipping valuable things, so trust us. And you're if going you in the right way. Right. If you're not shipping and you're shipping the wrong things, I, I don't think you get the freedom to do that. And yeah. so most teams sometimes have to earn that, whether you're a software development team, whether you're a product company or a service company. Sometimes the proof has to be in the pudding. But when you do that, then teams are happy to take your transparency. And even when they tell their customers, or if you're talking to a customer, they accept the fact that, look, I wouldn't bet my firstborn child on this feature coming four months from now. <laughs> I would say that it feels likely. And I know mm -hmm. that because of our relationship, I could call up and ask and say, how is this coming? And I'll give you an honest answer. But at the same time, you're not going to yell at me four months from now in a day if it didn't ship when you thought it might. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's... I got told that one point in time from, um, I think it was AT&T. <laughs> I know. <laughs> that one of those companies that shall not be named or whatever. Um, just just going there uh, three some years back trying to sign up and say, you know, what, when am I going to be able to get, say, UVerse in my area? Actually, right. I can almost get CenturyLink. They're like, you know, the next town over. <laughs> I'm just waiting for someone with better internet speed to just just – just come to my house, but I live way too far out. Uh, but, you know, it's one of those things. They they absolutely refused to comment on those things, um, yeah. even in their stores. Uh, apparently, from um, what they were able to tell me, because then from a compliance standpoint, they can somewhat be held to upholding that or some legal whatever. And, right. you know, for me, from a customer, I didn't even need to know. Exact. I don't want to hold anyone hostage for this. I just want some something. <laughs> just right. tell me, is it coming? And, <laughs> Give me right. a, a spark and, of hope. Uh, and I've learned that, I mean, empathy matters here because you know what? At the same time, I am a consumer of tons of different services mm -hmm. where I hate being kept in the dark. So I try to make sure I wear that hat that I, I want to tell enough that gives you what you need to know as transparent as I should be, but without setting your expectations wrong, just like I hope for the same things when I consume Microsoft technologies, when I'm doing anything out there, I like information as well. And so I have to put that hat on sometimes and realize that being too close to the vest is driving them crazy the same way it happens to me with other technologies and service providers. Yeah. 
delicate balance for sure. Absolutely. So do you, uh, I mean, depending on the organizations I've talked to, they, even if they claim agile, I've seen mm-hmm. them work it in different ways, but it sounds like yeah. you run a lot closer to uh, the definition of agile, which is uh, very nice to hear. Mm-hmm. Um, so at least from the product owner's standpoint out, yep. what types of people do you feel um, might be getting excluded from being able to provide feedback or from being heard um, either directly or kind of lost by a proxy or delegate? It's a good question. I guess I'd be interested in examples that you've seen because as you know, on a team like that, obviously you can accidentally become ivory tower and just do what you think of as internally and not listen to customers. For us, a lot of our products are still in an R&D phase. So the whole point is to get some MVP customers and, and have their feedback playing a part in knowing that, you know, the first version of this product that ships will be the one that early adopters are willing to pay for. It's not going to solve everyone's problems, mm-hmm. but it solves that first set of customers. So it's important to get the customer feedback. But at the same time, the only, th- you know, if I were thinking of a way to answer, depending on where you're looking well, for I, it. I can that, give you an example if that yeah, <laughs> helps a little bit. So I know I'm leading a question along and being like, well, here. So, um, so a customer uh, mm-hmm. calls into customer service or yep. whatever their comparable is. And they, you know, they bleed their heart out. Oh, I wish I had this. Oh, I wish I had that. There's some level of feedback. And um, some of yep. the orgs I've actually talked to, that's the only way that they'll accept priority, priority feedback. Like if mm. you, if you want this prioritized, just keep calling me. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but uh, so there, there's one channel where the, the customer service is that proxy. So whether right. they write it down wrong or, or do something, there's, there's customer, um, communication that can get lost from that. Right. Um, right. then there's the second part. So to me, that's the delegate. Um, the, uh, people getting excluded can be that customer service rep directly where say the product owner just never even talks to that person in the business, even though right. they really have something in the ecosystem around that product to say, or to provide valuable feedback. Yep. All right. I like that. So yeah, well, I mean, you can definitely be careful that for us, I mean, even our support people, they're engineers and we make sure we treat that as such that these aren't, you know, unskilled frontline people who just take in phone calls and enter in tickets. These are engineers who often are frontline and solve the problems. They're not going to hand things over. So their input is like anybody, their input's valuable. And while they'll pass things along as features, we also talk to that team directly during things like our team standups where, you know, every day I'm hearing if there's a major issue that we've seen over and over again, that needs to come into something in product. Mm-hmm. We have each feature team has a Batman where that's a developer or an engineer on call who wears the pager and responds to any escalation. So even the developers of a feature team and operations Mm -hmm. staff are meant to know exactly what customers are asking about. They're on the ticket. They might be talking to the customer directly to solve their problem. So you don't end up with this case where the engineers, software engineers and operations engineers on a feature team don't really know who their customer is. Instead, they're regularly talking to them because they're on a weekly rotation where they're interacting with them constantly. So that's some of the empathy piece and making sure that they understand right from the customer's mouth what they need and what they're doing. But at the same time, making sure that the support teams 
who act as frontline support are often brought into our our teams and our structure to explain things that are coming up to them. Some of our most of our features come from internal pe- people, which is great. That's that's great as well because they're not just doing it on behalf of customers, but they're users and have their own ideas. So trying to make sure that the voice of the customer comes in through multiple ways that people like myself like to do briefings directly for customers. So it's not filtered through an account rep. It's not filtered through a salesperson. It's me one-on-one discussing roadmap or strategy and getting the feedback back saying that resonates. We really need this. And so feed on the street is huge for whether it's C-level or executives or developers or product owners, you have to hear mm-hmm. from the folks who want to use what you're using and even watch them and see them in action. What about the other people on the playing field? Like there's, I typically throw uh, people who are in say billing or accounting under the bus yeah. on this question because they're, <laughs> they are on a direct path, kind of like customer services, but not so much where you, you, go to them and say, well, what's a feature that's missing from this? Right. What's the customer telling you? It's usually like, well, you could really, you'd make our lives easier and hence make the customer's life easier maybe or make the whole operation more efficient if you could help with X, Y, and Z. And right. that's, that's one of those maybe excluded items for me. It can be. I mean, we have a product owner who's focused on back office, which is on purpose to make sure that things that, aren't sexy frontline things for our customers are still getting the right attention around support processes, around custom one-off tasks and making that a supportable thing, billing and invoicing and making sure that those things are done efficiently. So we do want to make sure that it can't just be the flash and trash front-facing features that get everyone's attention. It's got to be, what are the sustaining things that do have those audiences, as you said, that say, You know, these are people who, how are we making sure that support handoffs are easier so that you're not being shuffled around between nine people with no context about what you just asked about? How do we make sure that your invoice is digestible? And if you have a question about it, the person who discusses it can issue a credit on the spot or take care of things. So those things may not feel like features, but of course they're features. And of course, their stakeholders represent internal people from sales that are onboarding a customer and need a great experience to the accounting team, to licensing, to all those sort of back office teams that are really ensuring that you're getting the long-term experience you want to be a satisfied customer. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, okay, let me ask this question. Uh, uh, depending on the organization I've looked at, there's a, a delicate balance um, as a type of, of prioritization mm-hmm. uh, between the Oracle and being inclusive. Um, and what I mean by the Oracle is I, I tend to comment on like Steve jobs. Yep. Um, obviously one of those people where at least for whatever time period in said organization, people know that's the person setting their priorities. That's the person with the vision. That's the person going the direction. And yeah, they want to hear from say customers, but it's kind of like, yeah, 20% or 10% of the whole, whatever we decide, that's really all we're going to listen to you. But this, this one person or this one entity, these, you know, four or five people tops, that's the, the Oracle that is setting the direction and they know all, and that's, that's the way we're going. Um, how, what do you think in 
maybe in your own org or what you see out there yeah. tends to be the right balance between that. Yeah. I mean, there's, whether it's the benevolent dictator or whether the, you know, whatever the right thing is, there's probably something that needs to be in a group of people who, who can be escalated to, who are looking at the bigger picture, who sometimes act as arbitrators, sometimes act as the ones who are getting the big picture sort of needs. But, you know, for us, Sure, there's a brain trust of people who at least have some thoughts about, is this the right architectural direction? Are these the feature teams we should even have? But, you know, we really try to make sure the decision making is pushed to the edges so that a specific feature team is going to, based on customer discussions or operational metrics or success metrics, that they know what they should be building and they should know what priorities they should have. So when we're launching some of our new teams that have been working for four or five or three, four months and are shipping soon for the first time, their feature set comes from them. Now, they, on a monthly and quarterly basis, read out their MVP definition and their backlog and their priorities to the collective team and to that kind of brain trust of people. And every month, all product owners go through an operations review where they talk about the health of their product, how many new customers, how many failures, how have you delighted your customer this month? And it's meant to be not just a bunch of green dashboards to say everything's fantastic. It's supposed to be, right, this is where, you know, we saw failure rates go up this month. Why is that? We saw that provisioning rates went up. Okay, well, did we have something that went on there? What are those success metrics that say you're running something healthy? And that may be where, you know, executive teams, where myself or some of our other VPs might say, you know what, this might be a place for a change in course. But it's not typically done by fiat. It's not being done saying, guess what, you're doing this now. It's done as we really expect that the product teams, you know, the feature teams led by product owners and analysts and engineering managers are understand where their product with the directive we've given them goes. And then you run with it because you're going to know best about your functional area, whether it's disaster recovery or backup or storage or any of those things. We're not going to claim knowledge in all those areas. We need the product owner to tell us where this should go. But if as we look at this, it doesn't fit into the bigger scheme or it's just thrashing and not actually shipping because it's too complicated or it should be a set of feature teams, that's when you still need someone to be able to come in and say, let's take a, take a step back and revisit how we should do this. So it's complete anarchy if each team <laughs> kind of just does whatever the heck they want, right? There yeah. needs to be some feeling of cohesiveness. And heck, this is next week. The one thing our feature teams asked me to do next week when we're all together in St. Louis is, can we make sure that the senior VP, Jared Ray, who you know, mm -hmm. can come in and, and quick kick off the session with 20 minutes about how all this pieces together, constantly help remind us of that, that that's what they look to for myself and from a couple others is to tell them that story so they always understand their context. But then we flip the rest of the day around and they tell us what they're building, what's the most important to them and their customers. And I like that balance of, you know, you're still the CEO of your product. But you still kind of have a board of directors who might say, you know, this is an area that you might want to pivot to or they're going to provide some advice and feedback. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when, when you guys get up there, you're basically conveying to a certain extent the general vision, the general mission. At least that's what I'm, I'm getting from that. I mean, I, right. I know you're trying to, to champion it a little bit like one of those Braveheart speeches <laughs> from a long time ago, <laughs> yep. get everyone rallied and, and on task. But, uh, yeah, you're not, 
not dictating it. I guess. No, I mean, yeah. really, the team is the team is chartered through us saying this should be a feature team that we need. Mm-hmm. We want to build this service and that's based on, you know, something we've heard from customers that's based on a good executive strategy. But once that team is formed and we've kind of kicked it out of the womb, you know, I, I expect that they own their destiny a bit. And unless they're they're completely out of their element or thrashing, there's really not a lot of reason for us to step in. Instead, it's help us all stay aware very lightweight. I don't want weekly status reports. I don't ask for those. I look at their backlogs. I read everyone's backlog every week just to see what are they they looking at. I look at their burn down and see if they're tracking well. I don't want to burden everybody with status meetings. I want to be empowered to find out how they're doing and I'll poke them in Slack and ask, hey, what are we working on here? What does this exactly look like? Why has this been stuck for so long? And ask specific questions, but not overwhelming people with give me your your stupid weekly status and and <laughs> how you're spending yeah. all your hours there we're it trying to hire <laughs> good judgment individuals right who can make good choices and what? take feedback well <laughs> yeah, i know it's novel <laughs> i i know there's micromanaging versus just hiring sane adult professional whatever the job title is but with regular checkpoints, I think that's with the balance I found yes. here that's good. That you know what, I'm not going to come into you every day, even every week. But when we have a monthly ops review, and you're sitting here talking to your peers and talking to the executive leadership of the company, explaining the health of your product, there's a good internal peer pressure to make sure you're doing the right things. I don't have to give you pressure. You're sitting here in front of 50 people telling why your business is succeeding or failing. That's empowering. And I think that's where product owners really enjoy the ownership. But at the same time, you take on accountability now. You've been given the reins. You have to deliver. And that I don't need to check in on you all the time. You're checking in with me, which is what ends up happening, saying, hey, are we on the right track? And you look over this versus me hovering over and checking everything they're doing. Enforcement by the, the fear of getting up and speaking in front of large audiences. Yeah, well, I mean, what we've learned, I think we all know, right? I know. With, with empowerment comes accountability. And I yeah. think most people would always choose empowerment versus being, you know, given a tiny slice of something and being told what to do and then having no responsibility for it. Eh, most people would really like saying you're in charge, not do a good job. Oh, yeah. That's, that's much more fun. It works really well for me, I, I think. <laughs> I think we'll see. Uh, so... What um, what methodologies or what tools uh, do you feel work as far as gathering the feedback or that you like your product owners um, to use to gather feedback? Um, you know, weekly meetings, monthly meetings, using um, aggregated tool sets, using uh, user voice forums, using Zendesk tickets. Just how how do you like them to acquire their feedback? Uh, yes to all. I think it's, it's one of those where the biggest place you get in trouble is when you think there's a single channel to collect requirements. There should be, based on audience, you might send out a survey. You might use user voice to collect feature requests. You might look at ticket history. You may go and talk to and run a little forum with three or four customers, or you may just travel around and talk to prospects or even lost deals to understand things. I think it's when you accidentally box yourself in and say, we do all our requirements based on feature tickets, you're going to get yourself in trouble and other. So building a good tool belt and understanding that certain contexts and certain audiences, right? You have some introverted customers who may not voluntarily tell you anything because they're happy. They're just doing their thing. 
So I have to reach out to them. I can't expect that I'm ever going to see feature requests from that customer. They just go about it. But when I call them and we do a roadmap and we solicit feedback, then it starts coming out. And that's understanding the context of some people are going to be vocal, some will be quiet, some need face-to-face, others will happily fill out a survey, some will attend a conference. All of those sort of settings, I think the more options you can give to your product owners and the more ways you can get them to solicit feedback, the more well-rounded input you'll get versus just the noisy ticket person or just the person who likes to pick up the phone. Those are valuable, but sometimes they can accidentally overwhelm somebody else who has great feedback but doesn't submit it very often. Do do you ever find that uh, opening the floodgates to all the channel methods <laughs> that are available, Facebook and LinkedIn and Twitter and user voice and Zendesk and in-person yeah. meetings. And just, I mean, there's just hosts of these things. And it, it at some point it almost feels yeah. like you have a, a, a big data problem where, Oh, now right. I got to put this thing on Hadoop just to just to correlate the information, just to, and now I got to do data mining to really rip those pieces and parts out and see what's being duplicated. And yep. Um, so for me, it's situational awareness matters, but you have to stay grounded. So much like Hadoop, much like even you know Spark and other tools, it's all mm-hmm. about how do I ingest data and make sense of it quickly to know what I'm supposed to do. I still read a lot every day, whether it's Twitter or my blog RSS feeds mm-hmm. or things like that. But I read a lot of things quickly. I stop at the things that I should care about and you start to absorb all of it and then make sense of it. But you stay grounded. You know, there's things that you not, might not care about or there's things that say these are, you know, for CenturyLink, these are the things we know we're good at and the things we like to focus on. Your request as a customer, that may be an awesome idea. I don't want to do that. That doesn't meet our core competency it would be a complete deviation from our strategy. So if I stay grounded on what we care about and even my own personal learning, I know what I like, what I care about. I'm not going to read an arg- you know, an article about AngularJS. It's neat stuff. Mm-hmm. I, I, I skip over it. Am I going to read about big data and cloud and you know some yeah. things with some emerging tech? Absolutely. But I, I've learned that when I know what to declare bankruptcy on, I'm much more comfortable. And product owners should feel the same as – you don't have to absorb it all. You simply have to be able to look at different sources of feedback, know which ones you're going to listen to and care about, and others that might just wash over you and, and stick in your mind so when it becomes relevant later, you can reference it. But don't let yourself get completely bogged down by so many sources of input that you're paralyzed. So let me ask this. Given the multiple channels that uh, you can acquire feedback, what is your take on actually – say, enforcing a certain level of standard um, Mm -hmm. regarding the feedback that you not keep, but that you start to use in some of the other decision-making processes. Because, you know, as soon as you draw a line in the sand of what you're going to use in any form, you're like, okay, you're going to isolate some people who are just not willing to do that. And, And when I go back and forth talking to some people about that kind of line in the sand. It's like, well, some people just won't do it. Maybe they're introverted, like you were commenting, or maybe they just don't care enough. And right. you basically having to rip it, you know, rip the details out of them. Um. Yeah, I mean, it's 
you know, I think it still comes back to the, the context of, of who you're talking to. There might be some line in the sand that says, look, if I'm collecting some basic feedback to vet my MVP, did I, am I solving the right problem? Am I doing it in a way that a customer will pay for? You know, I, I just may be able to say that this is to start with some feet on the street with five customers and a second round, maybe a survey. And, you know, those are the ways I'm collecting feedback and I may get it wrong. I think for us, the biggest things we've learned is, is fail fast is a real thing, but at the same time, for us, MVP and quick iterations mean we can learn, and sometimes we miss the mark. But I'd rather miss the mark after a month-long sprint than a, a, an 18-month period. Mm-hmm. And so you do have to sometimes cut off and say, this is as much feedback as I can take in. This is, you know, it validate our initial assumptions. Sometimes you have to be careful. You don't just look for the things that validate your assumption and yeah. mentally discard the rest. You have to actually let yourself get challenged. But mm-hmm. once you've taken in enough input that either validates your assumption or doesn't, you move on and you know not try to collect every possible data point, poll every single customer, and you know especially if I'm shipping a new product, if I get you know the right number of people saying this seems like it meets my need, I can stop there because that's what an MVP is: is who's going to be the first customers who pay for it. And then I will augment it to meet a more mass market need. So from a customer standpoint, I mean, you don't, people have only so much time in the day to, yeah. to go and pull all this data from, uh, from various right. people or accept it, obviously, the balance. Sure. Um, if you could get the majority, you know, the, maybe the 80-20 rule stuff, yeah. um, if you could get the majority of your customers, your people, your ecosystem to chime in, yep. I mean, would that change things if you had a good way of doing that? Sure. I mean, I think at the end of the day, more feedback, at least in a way that that can be digested, is clearly important. That's where, you know, how many times do you get the the survey monkey, the zoomerang, the whatever it is that says, yeah. hey, can you at least take two minutes and tell me that you like this or that? I just got this for the food order that came today. And, you know, text back, <laughs> yes, this was good food. So, I mean, it's always about lowering the barrier to entry to collecting that feedback. And you can be happy when 5% respond or 1%. And, you know, always dangerous because even if you get 5% response, it's going to just been 5% of super angry people. And the other 95% thought, thought something was awesome and just didn't say anything, which is often the case if you read you know, internet comments or plenty of other reviews is who takes the time to review things and, and provide feedback. It's, it's a tricky game. I don't know if I've ever seen it well solved. I think you just hope that you get a good enough cross-section. And if you've explicitly solicited the feedback from known customers and you can look at their response and say, oh, customer A responded, I know they provide great feedback and I can treat this as such, or I've never even heard from customer B. Maybe I reach out to that. <laughs> if I'm getting, you know, un- I'm getting aggregated feedback from thousands of parties of which I don't really know the quality of the response, I guess I have to take that with a grain of salt. But it's always about lowering that barrier to entry. If I can collect more feedback with the ability to discern if it's useful feedback or not, that, that's, of course, better than saying, well, I got one out of 50 response. I guess I'll go with their feedback, which is very suspect. Okay. Well, even if you had a certain number of your customers that you got feedback from, you, you didn't quite know how much you trusted their, their input, I guess. <laughs> but you're still able to kind of isolate their feedback. Uh, I know as product owners, you have to, you have to mentally take that into consideration, um, obviously on my side, I try and take it into consider consideration a little bit more metrically, right. um, but 
Yeah, and ideally, just another you, story. Yeah, I mean, hopefully you even get more advanced and if you're doing things like A-B testing and not really even asking for feedback, but simply mm -hmm. implicitly collecting it by seeing if people respond to this page or that page or this feature or that feature, that there's other ways to coerce people into giving them the feedback you want by simply observing their behavior, which is sometimes the best feedback you can get by just seeing not what you told me, because sometimes you'll tell me what you think I want to hear, but by actually seeing what you're doing and learning from that. Yeah, and finding what you really want. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Okay. Um, I think I just have two more questions, if I may, or if, are sure. you running out of time? No, let's do a couple more. Okay. Um, so the next one is, what do you wish could happen, but for whatever reason just can't, to improve the overall operation of product owners, productivity, and um, prioritization process, the outputs, uh, communicating to customers or just internal customers? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I know I um, kind of dived into this a little bit with, you know, what are your hardest right. ports, but sometimes the hardest things are not necessarily what you wish could happen. That's just stuff you wish would be a little bit more efficient. Yeah, I, you know, it's, a, it's definitely a tr an interesting question. I think that to some extent, the, you know, the thing that may never happen is people being satisfied with the status quo of what they have in a product. And that's a great thing because I wouldn't have a job otherwise. But at the same time, as product people, sometimes it's exhausting that the, all the you know 90% of what you hear is what's next or can you mm -hmm. add this? Can you do that? So that will never go away. And if it does, and again, I have no job and, and a lot of us don't do anything. So it's a blessing and a curse that people are engaged enough to ask for more and want more. And that's great. You know, I think the hard thing for product people is to also realize that a lot of their jobs sometimes is evangelism of what they have. And that I spend a lot of our time, when I do a roadmap presentation, I spend the first half of it recapping our process and what we have in market today. So that I'm setting some context. It's not always just about hey, here's what you should bet on next, or here's what is implicitly deficient because I have to deliver something in the future to help solve this problem. Instead of always pivoting it to being, here's problems I'm trying to fix, sometimes it's also, here's problems we've fixed already. And here's mm -hmm. our things that actually solve good problems. So product owners sometimes need to focus on the kind of in-market, what's available as a context setting versus always being back on their heels defending what they don't have. Yes. <laughs> trying to digest that all myself. So, yeah. I have to do it myself to stay sane. I, I can't focus solely <laughs> on what's next. I have to sometimes even mentally celebrate and high-five myself about a good release or about something that's already been in market for two years and is solving problems I'm seeing come in on new RFPs or new customer questions saying, oh, yeah, we already have that. You know, congratulations, Azure, for introducing billing APIs. We've had that for three years. Well done. So, you know, I, I get to get even market validation when we've done something good. And I, I make sure the team knows that, too, because any software team also feels that sometimes constant crush of fix this, add this, do that, versus, hey, guess what? What you built before is now coming to fruition and benefiting how many different customers. And we try to take some of our all- yeah, our all staffs, our other meetings to make sure we remind people not to be comfortable, don't get fat and lazy on it, but be be you know, be confident and be satisfied that you were able to ship something useful. People are getting value, hopefully they're delighted, and now they're coming back for more and that's a great problem. Which you guys should have felt 
pretty much right up that alley when uh, as tier three getting moved in to um, the CenturyLink branch and getting recognition for all the hard work done. Obviously, yeah, I mean, a ton of work to do after that <laughs> to roll things out. And there's always lots of work. And you know, if, if there wasn't, we wouldn't have things to do here. We wouldn't be working here. So it's good mm-hmm. to have the challenge. I think it's also important for leadership, and I count product owners in that leadership role, to make sure that the team also reflects on where they stand today, both competitively in the market as well as within the company, to make sure that they do they get a sense of accomplishment, not just the constant drumbeat of do more and more. Mm-hmm. Well, my last question, if I may, is who are some uh, people or organizations or products in general? Because, uh, you know, orgs and, and products, you t- typically have some people behind them, but you appreciate right. that uh, you feel are doing a good job at the prioritization game. Or I should say executing, because yeah. prioritization is, to me, it's the epoch of talking right. and hashing things out, and execution is the output. So, right. yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think you're seeing so many of the you know web companies, whether it's companies like Slack and Trello and, and others who seem to do a great job of constantly incorporating some of their feedback. You, you see them as active in channels when customers ask on things like Twitter and others. So you're seeing that things turn around pretty quickly from the request or just they're doing things that feel thoughtful mm-hmm. versus just, you know, our goal isn't to fill up the release notes with just things to say we did them is to do things our customers need us to do. And you know what, there's things that, and I'm apparently one of the lone windows phone users who still can't get a Slack app, but you know what, <laughs> for them, they didn't prioritize it. And to some extent, I guess I respect that as much as it, I hate it, but you know, they're focusing on other things and they're, they're constantly shipping things of value, even if it's not the thing I want right now. And that's fine. Right. And so I, I'm, it's been good to see some of the tools companies, whether it's some of the, the tools that do configuration management, some of the new DevOps tools where you're just seeing this constant rhythm of things. And, you know, whether it's Docker and others, I think where you're seeing some of these challenges, though, is that the features continue to come out. But also, are you also helping to do the evangelism piece? And some of them are doing a great job, but in emerging, te- emerging tech and even in cloud, I mean, you can think that cloud is passe and everybody knows this stuff. <laughs> I, I still talk to customers regularly who think of this as hosting or they think of this as you know, not what the true principles of cloud are. So I think for a lot of us in tech, when they're shipping things, when, you, when I see companies that execute well, I also see them explain well. Amazon mm-hmm. does a great job with AWS you know, you see companies who don't just announce a feature, they put it in context. And mm-hmm. the best companies seem to ship that way, and I try to emulate that where I can, which is not we shipped X. It shipped, we shipped this new capability. We shipped this new job that you can hire us to do, and this is why it will benefit you and make you happy. That's, mm-hmm. for me, the sign of, of a more mature release process that puts things in context. And some of the cloud companies do a great job of that. Again, some of the tool companies are as well. And I like that. You got to make sure you understand your audience isn't necessarily just the geeky people who are looking at the source code of your app. <laughs> They're also the ones who are signing the check saying this is worth spending X per month for us to subscribe to. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. Uh, the, the guy I actually was talking to uh, for the first episode, his name's uh, Justin Jackson. And his in his market, in his area, he likes to try and push saying, 
just that's great. That's a feature you like, but is it something you're willing to pay for? And that's right. a common delineation for him on whether or not it's even tossed right. on the list and stuff. So, yeah, that yeah. can definitely play, play a part in that as well. So you just again, you like to see people who you feel like you have a sense that they know what their their thing is and they're sticking to their thing and they're doing it in a good way. They don't feel like they're just shooting things all over the place to see what sticks. I think that's when you have a lot of respect for companies who really stick to, not just stick to their core competencies, because sometimes you have to branch out, but it feels like there's a theme. And that's, I think, for a lot of companies that we all use ourselves, you kind of get a sense when a company stretches themselves too thin or they're not really executing on the things that are as relevant because they're just trying to cover too many things. you know. And that's the companies I think we all respect the most are the ones that are seem like they're focused even as they expand their reach. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, you know, I know CenturyLink's had a nice pulse going for probably as long as I, since you've been tier three, <laughs> as long as I've known you guys, um, there was an event that happened recently um, for uh, Microsoft through their Azure, where they did one of those big launch events like they do every year or something like that. Yep, and. I know this year I was kind of feeling like, you know, that's great that they, they did this and they did that. And, you know, that's great stuff, but wow, that's a lot of stuff to just kind of, you know, like there's so many different pieces that are like, well, it's preview or right. and there, there's this or there's that, you know, I've it, where it, it's nice that the feature was released out there, but it doesn't feel totally baked. <laughs> Right. <laughs> I don't know how to best explain. Yeah, I mean, the, the meaning of beta is very different now than it was before. It's, you know, alphas and betas are often about taking things to market and collecting some feedback, understanding that there still may be some quirks in how something works. But at the same time, it still needs to be good working software. It's not yeah. an excuse to slap a label on it just to start generating revenue. It, it, if you're being legitimate, you're trying to collect feedback on a still vertical slice of a product. It may not have all the functionality, but I've cut through all of the aspects of that app and I've given you something of use and you can see where the extensibility points will, will go over time. And again, I'm doing those things in a way that I'm explaining the context of the app and what I'm shipping. Thank you for listening. Show notes, links, and resources are available at nopriorities.com. Help the show by subscribing, rating, and commenting in iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at no priorities that's k-n-o-w priorities and once again thank you for your time i'm randy skopasek have a great day